A warning before I begin. This is a story that includes sexual violence. If you have suffered trauma, please listen with care. It's called a freedom flyer. An eagle made of plastic or metal soaring over the front doors of homes across America. Those cheesy eagles were all the rage in the 70s. It was a way to wrap yourself in the American flag, or, I kid you not, a way to show the world you were free of mortgage payments and now owned your American dream. My dad had a freedom flyer. It hung over his garage and stayed there for decades. In March of 1984, that slice of Americana, a fleeting image in the midst of a violent crime, would captivate a city of 274,000 people. It would send police officers, mailmen, truckers, senior citizens, and news reporters on a quest to find a particular freedom flyer on the right house in precisely the right place. Dolores, a former Summit County Sheriff's deputy, said the police scanners told the story back then. They were just like bloodhounds. I mean, they were focused on that, and, you know, it's just constant, you know, the chatter on there. It was like the entire city had mobilized to find a cheap piece of plastic that would soon become a symbol of strength, hope, and courage. I'm Carol Costello, an investigative reporter and former CNN anchor and correspondent. This is Blind Rage, Episode 2, Terror. Phyllis, her purple coat over her head, her body twisted into a pretzel, lay on the floor of her car, terrified. She had done all the right things to escape this monster. She pummeled him, screamed for help, laid on the horn, but no one came. It was broad daylight. Her car was parked in the middle of the city, a gas station and a business park nearby. Where was everyone? It was as if the world had been emptied of people. Stop fighting, her abductor told her, or I'll kill you. Then the car started to move. Destination? Unknown. Well, she always told us, uh, us girls, she said, a simple rule of thumb is no matter what's going on, keep your wits about you because that will get you through it. This is Phyllis's daughter, Diane. Bad storm, traumatic event, you know, anything. Keep your wits about you. Fall apart after it's over. But in that, in that moment, keep your wits about you because it will save you. Phyllis Cottle tried hard not to fall apart. It was not easy. There she was on the floor of her own damned car, her head and shoulders on the floorboard, a coat over her head, while a madman with a knife threatened her, a madman who was driving her Buick to God knows where. Phyllis's granddaughter, Drew. Most of us have never been in a situation where fight or flight doesn't work. So when you're in that situation and you can't fight and there's no flight option, you go to your next thing. Phyllis's next thing, her superpower, her uncanny ability to notice and remember trivial details. Her eyes were obstructed by her coat, but she could rely on other senses. She felt the car go over a bump, so she knew he went over a curb. From the court proceedings. Miss Cottle said, quote, I felt a bump. It did not feel like the driveway that goes off onto Rhodes Avenue. It felt more like the curb onto West Cedar Street, end quote. That meant he turned on West Cedar Street, not Exchange Street. She filed that information away. 
Phyllis felt the car pick up speed. That meant he had taken the inner belt around the city so he could drive faster. Miss Cottle continued testifying, quote, he asked me if I'd ever been raped. I just answered him, no, end quote. I don't know how Phyllis kept it together after that. She now knew why she'd been kidnapped and what she would endure. She struggled to remain calm, to control what she could and survive. The car slowed after about 10 minutes, then stopped. Phyllis heard the man dig through his gym bag. She knew it was a gym bag because he had hit her in the face with it. He said, don't move, at which point Miss Cottle realized he was binding her ankles. The man tied her ankles, leaving just enough leeway between each so she could put one foot in front of the other. He tied her hands behind her back. Then he dragged her out of the car. The victim attempted to look at her attacker's face. He replied, quote, don't look at me, close your eyes, end quote. Then he grabbed her coat and put it back over her head. Again, Phyllis displayed remarkable poise and resourcefulness. She dropped her head to her chin so she could see what was at her feet. Pebbles, dirt, wooden steps with no backs. They were light green with metal treads. The man then forced her to sit down on some kind of metal bench. Phyllis listened as he walked away. She thought about trying to run for it, but her ankles were tied, so that wouldn't work. She couldn't loosen the cords around her ankles because her hands were bound behind her back. She just sat there and waited. Minutes ticked by, or maybe seconds. The door opened. He grabbed her by the arm and hauled her to her feet, forced her to make a right-hand turn into the house. She filed all of that away. Emily Pelfrey, a former prosecutor and my legal guide, is with me today. Emily, Phyllis's poise, all of those details filed away in her brain. You've worked with survivors. Is this unusual? I think it says a lot about who she is and what she's experienced in her life, that she's able to disassociate herself from that situation and to take in details and not just is the wall red or is the wall blue, but she's taking in specific visual cues from around her. She's taking in scents, textures, all of this, and just filing it away. And I think that just goes to show how strong of an individual she was, but it also makes you think about why is she able to make these memories stick? Why does she know to notice certain things, and how is she able to disassociate herself? Let's pause for just a minute to talk about control, disassociation, terror. I don't know what any of that's like, and I pray I never do, but I want to understand. So I talked with Summit County Prosecutor Sherry Walsh. She's a force when it comes to protecting women in her county. She's also a survivor. I was assaulted on February 21st, 1986. So two years after Phyllis So two years assaulted. after. Here's where it gets eerie. I can't think of the right word, so, so I'll just lay it out for you. In 1986, two years after Phyllis was carjacked, Walsh was carjacked too. She left her apartment to go to work in the morning, and a man with a knife in broad daylight on a busy street approached Walsh from behind and forced her inside her own car. Just like Phyllis. 
fact, I was in the driver's seat of my car and the man had a knife and he had me around the throat. And I felt like I was actually like in the air looking down at something happening to somebody else. You know, you're in like a different place. Thankfully, I didn't freeze and I actually was kicking and hitting and and I was able to get away. Um, But I remember just such a weird feeling like all of a sudden like I was floating. So it was happening to someone else. Yes. This couldn't possibly be happening to me. Yeah, you're just so terrified. It is really hard to, to describe unless you've been there. It was just really terrifying. More when we return. Hi, I'm Sean McCabe. And I'm Carrie McCabe. We are, well, married, obviously, (laughs) but we're also obsessed with the darker side of things. True crime stories, alien abductions, poltergeists. If it leaves you scratching your head and keeping those lights on at night, we want to hear about it. That's why we host the podcast Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Every week, we bring our listeners a true story guaranteed to send chills down your spine, from history's most brutal serial killers to the mystery of spontaneous human combustion. Yep, lots of these stories leave unanswered questions behind, and you'll get to poke through the rubble of the evidence with a hardened skeptic and... Someone whose mind is more open to fun. Yeah, that's what I was going to (laughs) say. You can find Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie wherever you get your podcasts, and on social media at Ain't It Scary. Come play with us. Something is creeping in. Don't follow it down. Let me introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. The type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now, you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy. And you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son, who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. Back to March 20th, 1984. Location? Who knows? It's now roughly 1.15 in the afternoon on a beautiful spring day. Phyllis was now in the house. Her attacker had removed the coat covering her eyes. She desperately wanted to look at him so she could identify him later, but he told her to close her eyes. Every time she opened them, he would threaten her. But Phyllis continued to use her superpower. And in doing so, she continued to demonstrate a courage, an empowerment, that inspired me and countless other women, navigating a world still not quite ready for feminism. Her nose told her the house was musty, like it hadn't been lived in for a long time. She heard a bottle break, then felt the man use a shard of glass to cut her bindings. You know what comes next. Phyllis was assaulted in ways I cannot bear to articulate. But even through the assault, 
Phyllis's mind worked like a machine. The house smelled, but her attacker did not. He was clean. She was afraid to look at him, but she used her sense of touch. He was athletic, but not muscle-bound. He had hair on his upper lip, but not a full mustache. He wore gloves, distinctive gloves. They were a nice, deep kind of tan. That's her own description. They weren't dark brown or light brown. They were tan, with zippers on the front, with little metal rings attached. After the attack, the man told her he needed money. At this point, the defendant held up a bumper jack over the victim's head and said, quote, you got to get me money or I'll kill you, end quote. He forced her to turn her back to him and threw her purse on the floor. Phyllis emptied her wallet. She had $2 and some change. Miss Cottle stated, quote, he noticed my checkbook and said, write a check for $100. I can't, she replied. I only have $19.67 in my account, end quote. The man grabbed her checkbook and ripped out a check. Now, he said, if you go to the police, I know where you live. After a time, he tied her up again and forced her back into the car. This time, he allowed her to sit upright, close beside him, without her coat over her eyes. Still, she could feel the knife. Every time she tried to glimpse his face, he grew agitated and growled, don't look at me. He drove to a bank, her bank. He used the drive-through. He whispered, do what I say and you will be home by supper. He uttered that phrase over and over. It became her mantra, her ticket to survival. If I just listen and do what he says, it will be over soon. Phyllis heard the bank teller over the intercom just like it was any other day. It was surreal. She did as she was told. She filled out a personal check, made it out to cash, and signed her name. But inside the bank, the teller said something was off about this transaction. The signature on the bank slip was so shaky she could barely read it. The employee hit the mic and asked her to come inside. I want to stop here and talk with Emily Pelfrey again, my legal guide, because I know what you might be thinking. Why didn't Phyllis scream or pound on the windows or write, help me on the bank slip? This is something that I would try to get jurors to understand. We tend to judge victims as harshly, if not harsher, than the actual defendant that we're prosecuting. So I would ask them to not think of what the typical response would be or what they've seen on television or what they expect this person to do. Because it's very easy for us to think, well, why didn't she just yell? Why didn't she try to write something? The, the truth is that she did what she had to do in her mind to survive, and she wanted to be safe on that other side. Plus, her attacker had a knife. He knew her address. He knew where her family lived. She could not risk their lives. Her attacker did not let her go inside the bank. Instead, he drove off and taunted Phyllis. You know, I've been doing this since I was 11, he said. I've killed five women. And then he repeated, do what I say. You'll be home by supper. It was the first time this guy had mentioned murdering other women, and it made a devastating impression. He drove Phyllis back to that same house and assaulted her again. And when he finished, he tied her up, led her to that same enclosed back porch, forced her to sit on that same metal bench, and left her there while he went outside. He didn't cover her eyes this time so she could see outside of the back porch. You are about to hear Phyllis describe that moment. 
I interviewed her in 2004. The audio quality isn't great, but listen carefully, and I'll help you along the way. I remember sitting on, it was metal, whatever I was sitting on, I remember putting my hand, trying to read fingerprints, and looking around the room, and I kept looking at this window, thinking, you know, even if I get out there, you know, he'll catch me. And, and something had told me from the get-go to remain calm and not fight him in any way, shape, or form. And I think that kept me alive a lot longer because I didn't know what his intentions were at the end. But up to that point, I hadn't really, I didn't feel that I had actually been hurt. And I honestly don't know if I would have went to the police. Oh, sure. Really? At that point in time. You know, I was, that was something I would deal with later. But he kept telling me, he said, you do what you're told, you'll be on my supper. Phyllis turned her head slowly so she would not attract attention. And that's when she saw something, something that would prove vital. A spot of bright color in a sea of white and beige two-story houses, flying above the door, a cheap plastic bit of Americana. I didn't know where we were. Because uh, when he had taken me to the house, uh, I, I wasn't familiar with the neighborhood. I couldn't see any street signs. But when I was sitting on that thing, I could see out the back door, see the, the ceiling of my car, and him looking through the trunk. And right kind of through maybe like two houses on the street, you know, over, I saw this blue house, white trim, and, and a black eagle uh, on the gable. A blue house with a black eagle, that freedom flyer. As I told you, they were everywhere in 1984. But this one, on a bright blue house, would prove vital. Phyllis did not know this at the time, but she filed that image away. She heard him slam the trunk and waited for whatever would come next. Next week, Blind Rage. To me, that was probably the scariest thing in the world. You know, you can't get out, you can't see. And, uh, and, and then when he, things that he did all along, uh, look for matches. Do you have matches, Phyllis? No, I don't have any. He stopped the guy on the street, and he got some matches. I think I said, well, what's he going to do with the matches? He's not smoking now with me. What's he going to do with the matches? So you're thinking, I know it's coming up. I know now. She's probably getting very scared. Carol Costello presents Blind Rage as a signature show of the Killer Podcast Network and can be found on all listening apps. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcast.com. This episode was produced by Chris Iola and me, Carol Costello. Additional thanks to audio engineer Sean Rule Hoffman, contributor Nyjah Galladay, production director Bridget Coyne, and executive producer Gerardo Orlando. Original music is composed by Timothy Law Snyder and Scott Snyder. All of the information in this podcast came from my memories of the event. Phyllis Cottle, her family members and friends, former law enforcement, prosecutors, former and current journalists, police reports, and court documents. I've tried to tell this story factually to the best of my ability, but sometimes memory fails. It's been a long time, but my goal is simple. Phyllis was an amazing woman, and her story of courage should be shared. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because 
The news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.